Welcome back to Lost in Citations. Today's guest is Dr. Christina Gonneau, Associate Professor in TESOL and the Master's in TESOL Program Director in the Department of Language and Linguistics at the University of Essex. Dr. Gonneau, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? I'm doing quite well. Thank you for agreeing to do the interview at this time. It's 7 a.m. about in in England, so uh, I appreciate uh, your your ability to be flexible and be a morning person, which is very nice. Thank you. Thanks for the invitation. And um, today is the first day of teaching for us. It's the first day of term, so it was absolutely fine for me to be up early and get in the mood because the last time I had a proper lecture for MA students was March during lockdown. Mm. Uh, so it's uh, it, it's going to take some time to catch up with everything. So I think having the interview as the first thing in the morning is definitely helpful. Now, we're recording this on October 12th. Of course, it will be released later, yep. but uh, to give people context. So you said this is your, fr so are you, you're teaching online right now? Yes, yes, we are teaching online. Um, we did some teaching online in the last week of our spring term, uh, back in March, mid-March. Uh, then we had this break and then just a couple of revision sessions and that was it. So it's really now, it's this term where we, um, in, in, in the university, we will all get really used to teaching online. So yeah, it's going to be the very first um, proper two-hour lecture with MA students, which will be done online. So I'm really curious to see how it will go, really. Wow, how many students? Um, I'm not sure yet. We had the welcome last week, and I know that not all of them uh, were there on Zoom. Uh, it's actually, it used to be a large class, but I am expecting it to be much smaller this year. I'm expecting about 15 to 20 students, so it's not, it's not that hard, I think, to manage things. You're doing a two-hour lecture today? Yes, yeah, but we will have a break in between. Um, is this once a week so, class? Uh, yes, yeah, this one is every Monday. All of our classes are once a week, uh, mostly two hours. Um, and depending on the on the focus of the module, we might have three-hour classes as well, like to, um, a two-hour lecture and a one-hour follow-up class. It really depends on the year of study and the, the focus of the module. Is this your first time teaching online or did you did you do a bit last term? Yeah, yeah, we did a bit um, last term, but it was mainly revision classes and uh, the last week of our term when there was no proper lockdown here in the UK, but the university had decided uh, to um, close the campus. Uh, because the number of cases was going up very quickly in the UK. So they decided to close the campus and just switch to online teaching. So I haven't done it um, a lot, uh, but it's not going to be my first time, which is a bit of relief. <laughs> are your students mostly from uh, the UK or are they from, from all over Europe? Um, the undergraduate students are mostly from the UK, I would say. The postgraduate students, uh, masters and PhD students, are mainly from overseas, uh, Europe, but also um, other parts of the world. All right. Well, let's let's jump into uh, the book we're going to be talking about today, which is the emotional roller coaster of language teaching, which you might be going through this term. Uh, we don't yeah, know. <laughs> That, I, I think we will in, in two different ways. The first, uh, the first way is that um, it will be really interesting to see how the term will um, uh, develop because of the online teaching, some of the students being here, some of the students being back home, not knowing when they will come back and all of that. Um, and another way in which we are going to go through the book, this term, is that I will actually be using it in my classes. So the class that I mentioned that I have today is a master's class on the psychology of language learning and teaching this is how the module is called as well mm. and uh, we have dedicated sessions on emotions learner emotions teacher emotions and the book is going to be something that we will use this term for the first time actually you're going to use this book yep yeah we're ah, going to use cool. it for some of for some of the sessions yes that's yeah. fantastic so and you've written unless i'm behind on your bio you you've co-edited two other books Yes. As well, right? And they're they're both related to 
uh, the same topic? Yes. Yeah. So the the previous one uh, was in 2017. I, uh, the book is about language learner anxiety. This is another book that we use on this particular course. Mm. And um, this is a book I co-edited again with Jean-Marc Duwale and another colleague of ours, Mark Dobney, who's based in Portugal. And uh, we are using it for the sessions on language learner emotions and anxiety. Mm. Yeah. Wow. That's that's fantastic. Thanks. You must be, um, I don't know if proud is the right word, but I would say at some point in my career, I think it would be cool to write a book, publish a book, and then use that book in my lectures. That would be kind of a cool gold, gold post. So that kudos to you. Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Thank you. And it's interesting to see how students respond to it as mm. well. Yeah. Do you, did you find, I'm just a little bit curious because I... I'm actually interested in teaching MA students or, I mean, I can't do it now. I'm, I'm in, I'm started my PhD, but I'm actually, as I've gotten a bit older, I'm more interested in teaching teachers. When I first started out, I'm de I was definitely more interested in teaching students, but I think it would be kind of exciting to teach future teachers or to influence future educators. Have you always been interested in one or the other or did you I'm kind of curious about your background to your because some 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 professors I I find have a preference they'd rather lecture undergraduates or some actually would prefer to to train teachers do you have a preference either way or um how do you how do you feel mm -hmm. about that okay first of all congratulations on having started a phd oh thank you <laughs> <laughs> second um I I started I actually started as a um, language teacher, so I was teaching students, um, and that was not as part of any of the courses I'm teaching on at the moment. But that was um, these were students like English language learners, so they were learning English as a foreign language or as a second language, really. Mm -hmm. So this is how I started. But alongside that, I was also doing my PhD, and I was interested in research and in researching the, the, the topic I was focusing on at the time, which was language learner anxiety. Mm. Um, I was going to conferences and I could see how much I would enjoy academic discussions and being with other researchers and listening to their ideas about my research, their comments and feedback. I felt I learned a lot from that. And I think this is how I became more interested in um, in, in working in an institution in a research-based post, which is what I am, uh, which is what I am doing now. So, um, my position at the moment combines teaching and research, but I would say it's more um, research-focused. Or maybe the uh, I'm doing some teaching, but there are lots of expectations from me and, and colleagues who are in the same position to, to uh, do research and publish and go to conferences and stuff. Um, so uh, this is how I became interested in academia. Uh, teaching is something that I, have, that I have always enjoyed, I think, and I find it very relaxing as well. Um, and, uh, and of course, face-to-face -face teaching is something that I um, enjoy a lot more than online teaching because mm. I think nothing can replace the interaction among people. Uh, but unfortunately, we don't have another option at the moment. Uh, so, and then your other question about which group I'm, um, I prefer. I don't really mind, to be honest with you, uh, but working with practicing teachers at the MA level, which is most of what I do, mm. um, excites me the most, I think. Um, I do some teaching to undergraduate students, uh, which, um, which is fine, and I like that too, uh, because of the dynamics in the class. They are very different uh, from my MA classes, but working with the MA students who are practicing teachers, and apart from the psychology module, I do teaching practice with them and lesson planning and classroom management and research skills. Uh, and uh, I like this combination of topics and uh, the fact that they are here and they are receiving training to become English language teachers. 
Most of them go back home and they uh, they work as language as English language teachers in their home country. Uh, so it's uh, really it, it's different. It's different types of groups. I enjoy I enjoy both, but I think I prefer practicing teachers working with teachers. Well, if we can. If we can jump ahead a second, I'd like to talk about critical incidents. And I guess yes. I'm a terrible host because I want to talk about that before I define what it is. But that's all right. I'm, I'm assuming mm-hmm. academics are listening to this. Because the reason I asked you the previous question is now I'm curious and I'm I'm actually excited by the idea of doing the job you're doing now where you're, you can apply your own research and you can help teachers. You can prepare master students in TESOL to go out there. You know they're going to go out there and be teaching at mm-hmm. a high level. But I had a critical incident, I would say, in 2010 when I was doing my, my CELTA. And um, I was very inexperienced with, with language teaching. So I, I did my CELTA, um, you know, the, the, the course that, that Cambridge does. And, um, and my teacher was a great teacher. And I thought the, the class was great. But at one point, now there were students from all over the world there. At, I can't remember the nationality of, of the woman, but at one point, this woman really challenged the teacher in like a really strong way. And, and I would say that was a critical incident for me because I actually don't remember exactly how well the teacher handled it. Maybe she did. Maybe, I can't really, I just remember, oh my gosh, because the, the way the, per, because it's a, now of course, masters is, is, is even higher than a CELTA, but I got the impression that this was someone who had strong opinions, was an adult who had taught before, and when the teacher was giving, you know, the lecture, this, this person all of a sudden got offended, really argued, made a big deal. And I think ended up leaving the class. And I thought, oh, maybe it's better to teach people that are less experienced so you don't get challenged like that. But now I think maybe, yeah. you know, it's uh, now that I think now it, it would be kind of a fun thing to do. Have you ever had that sort of experience? Because you are dealing with, with older students or maybe more experienced or they think they know more than they know. Uh, do, do you know Do you know what I'm saying? Do you, have you ever had that experience where someone's challenged you openly in class about something? Um, let me think. Um, uh, uh, as part of this role at the moment, uh, we do actually. You're you're making a very important point here because um, I am working with practicing teachers, uh, but uh, the the program is the MA program, the MATSL program here at Essex is both for inexperienced or mm. less experienced teachers, but also for experienced teachers. And what we do is in the second term we have two pathways, and the teachers are um, the teachers follow, let's say, the pathway that. Uh, is for them according to the teaching experience that they already have but in the first term they are all together Mm. in the same class and in the same group and they take the same modules and I can sometimes understand who (laughs) knows something quite well and who doesn't and needs more support Um, I haven't been challenged openly in class as part of this role because we use a system here in which the course director, myself in this case, meets the students and talks to them and explains things to them. So I think that by making clear, um, by making everything clear right from the start, um, it is very helpful. But I remember being challenged in the past when I was working as an English language teacher here and perhaps a critical incident for me when I was um, challenged by a student in class about um, my age <laughs> um, and you know things like that not necessarily uh, the way I was teaching you know mm. uh, so perhaps for me that was a critical incident so that was something that I was thinking about um, after the class and maybe a few days after the class uh, but in terms of you know having more experienced teachers in the class and challenging me I think I've learned how to handle that uh, so maybe through all these little chats, the one-to-one meetings, and, and, and by giving some good answers in class during the lesson. Um, the thing is that um, so far, the, the people that have more experience than are on our MA TESOL course are the ones that are usually uh, silent and appreciate what we do and they are willing to help those students in the class that are less experienced and they know that they are less experienced and they are willing to do that. I think the ones that 
that see something as irrelevant or they think they know it uh, are the ones who have less experience. This is what I have noticed. Mm. And they think they know it, but in reality they don't. Or maybe they have different perceptions of what it means to know something. Mm. Um, and this has happened to me, I would say, more than being questioned or being challenged in an open way by an experienced MIT or student. So your advice to avoid that situation is to have one-on-one -on -one meetings before the everyone meets in a group? I would say, um, yeah, making everything clear right from the start. Um, it, it can be in one to one meetings before the course starts, but if this is not possible, uh, in the first lecture, um, making clear what the aims of the module are, what the learning outcomes are, um, maybe putting this uh, in a document or a module information handout, which students can read. And if they haven't read it before the class, which is normally the case, uh, you show it to them during the class and go through it with them. I've, I have found these strategies very helpful because I think students appreciate honesty mm. and, um, and the fact that uh, we are taking the time and the effort to um, explain things to them. All right. So... The, the book, again, is The Emotional Roller Coaster of Language Teaching. I, I have the book in my hands, which is a great Thank feeling. Thank um, I recommend everyone to, to buy it. I actually bought mine at a book depository. I love, I love book depository. I use it all the time. And it's we're going to be talking a, a few different things because you are one of the editors of the book and you also uh, co-authored one of the chapters of the book. So I guess I want to start in the beginning, towards the beginning of the book, um, just for, for, I can remind people now, the, the chapter is critical incidents in language teachers' narratives of emotional experience. I kind of wanted to talk about some of the, the background information on emotions and feelings on page two. But I guess before I do that, how did this book come about? How did you end up working with uh, Jean-Marc Duvalle and uh, Jim King? Right, yeah. So Jean-Marc and I, I think we have known each other since 2014, I believe. So uh, we met at a conference in Graz in Austria. That was the first Psychology for Language Learning conference. And um, this is when, back then, I had an idea of working on a book on language learner anxiety. And because Jean-Marc, by that time, had um, published a lot on this particular topic, on language learner anxiety, um, I, I thought that that was a good opportunity to approach him in person and um, discuss my ideas with him. And uh, Jean-Marc was very enthusiastic from the start, and it was also a good opportunity for us to um, invite uh, the contributors to that book uh, in person, because all of them were, were at the conference. It was a very successful event. Oh. Uh, yeah, so we uh, met there in person for the first time. We started talking about that. Our third colleague, the third editor, Mark Dobney, was at that conference too. And um, I think everything worked very well. And the main reason was because everything, everyone was there. And we could see them and talk to them in person. Mm. Uh, so we worked on that book and everything went very well. And then... I had told um, Jean-Marc that I wanted uh, to um, work on a book on language teacher anxiety. So since we did one on language learner anxiety, I think it's time to, fo to focus on teachers. Mm. And this is when Jean-Marc said, um, I think it's a good idea for the new book to be on teacher emotions generally on, and, and not just on teacher anxiety. I'm not sure if Jean-Marc himself remembers this conversation, but I remember it very well and I remember all of his advice. Mm. So this is what he said, and I thought yeah, that, yeah, he, he is right. So we shouldn't limit this to uh, teacher anxiety only because teachers in their daily practice experience a, a, a range of emotions and not just anxiety. Uh, so uh, we um, uh, wanted to propose this idea to multilingual matters, and then while we were thinking about it, but hadn't even started to write anything, uh, Jim King had invited me to Leicester to give a talk to his students. Uh, so I went there. I think it, that was in 20, early 2016. Uh, so I went to Leicester and uh, we were talking about our research. And I mentioned this idea 
that Jean-Marc and I had. And Jim was also very excited about it. And um, uh, he joined the, the team of editors. Uh, so then we proposed, we, we wrote the proposal, we submitted it to the publisher and, and everything went through and uh, we started working on the volume. So this is how this collaboration started. And if people would like to listen, I, I've also interviewed uh, Jim King and John Mark Dabade. So you can check out uh, lostincitations.com. So those are both uh, good interviews. Um, all right. Well, I, I really do like this book. Because you do a couple of good things. I don't know if this this is what you recommended to all the authors, but I feel like all the chapters are very well set up, where you kind of tell the reader what they're going to be reading. Uh, you give you give a nice background, and then you wrap it up with it's almost like a module where you have these post reading tasks for the reader, which is kind of a cool thing. Who who came up with that idea? Right. So um, thank you for that. And it's very nice to hear that um, from you, especially with the, the um, uh, structure of each chapter, because uh, we were asked by the um, reviewer uh, of the book when we finalized the volume and we had everything in and we sent it off to the publisher. We were asked to um, ask the authors to add even more structure to their chapters. And we thought that this was not necessary. Hmm. And we felt that we didn't want to um, uh, to impose, let's say, this kind of change to the authors of the different chapters. So this was something that we didn't do. Hmm. But um, we followed the reviewer's suggestion uh, to add these post-reading tasks at the end of each chapter. So the reviewer suggested that. And we thought that that's a really good thing to do. And um, when we um, uh, when we contacted the authors again uh, with uh, feedback on their individual chapters, we also asked all of the authors to come up with three three. I, th I think we said three to five post-reading tasks uh, to add at the end of the chapter. And I, um, I remember that all authors uh, welcomed this idea, and all of them did that. Uh, so, yeah, th th that's the background. This is how it all um, emerged, actually, in each chapter. So, um, again, it's the emotional roller coaster of language teaching, and uh, with, with yourself, Jean-Marc Duvalle, and Jim King as the editors... Um, and then you also wrote a chapter, Critical Incidents in Language Teachers' Narratives of Emotional Experience. Uh, I do want to do a bit of a conversation on about page two, because I brought this up yeah. in the interval, in the interview with Jean-Marc Duvalle, and he said, oh, I think you, it's better to ask uh, Christina about this. <laughs> um, yeah, that's so, fine. <laughs> so my plan is I kind of want to dig into some of these ideas then we can jump into your chapter and then we can kind of wrap it up um with, with maybe some uh i don't know my 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 own observations and see if i can get some of this stuff clear with mm -hmm. me in in my own research mm -hmm. all right so the first point um you say you reference barrett you say emotions refer to physical manifestations or responses to an event as opposed to feelings which depict mental associations and reactions to an emotion. Okay, now I guess I, I want to just go through these one by one. Um, and then at the end, maybe I'll ask you a, a, some, some questions about them all. So as far as that first one, is this something that you, is this something that you agree with? Uh, yeah. And um, uh, we felt that it was important to clarify the difference between emotions and feelings, because as we uh, say um, on this page, before the um, extract that you have just read out, we actually say that most people um, tend to use the words emotions and feelings interchangeably, mm. or they see them as synonyms, maybe, uh, words that have exactly the same meaning. But that's not right. Uh, maybe in everyday speech... Uh, when we uh, do not, we when we do not discuss emotions within this particular context of psychology, but the, let's say we talk with a friend about how we felt about something, maybe within this uh, informal context we can use these words interchangeably. But when we are talking about approaches to understanding emotions and researching emotions and so on, which is the focus of this book. We need to make sure that we understand the difference between emotions and feelings. And, um, yeah, emotions are um, 
things we can see. That is why we say physical manifestations. Mm. Okay, I know that some people might contest that. They might say that, well, uh, some of us are very good at hiding our emotions or we know how to do that. So uh, you can't always see how you can't always see our emotion. I know that people will contest that, but in order to understand the difference between the two, we can say that emotions are physical manifestations of how we feel, and this is why they lead, or this is how they lead to feelings. So they are different. And I, I'm glad you, I'm glad you talked about that because I, I feel like I understand this now, because. When you research test anxiety with uh, Saracen and, and Mandler, they, they classified all reactions as either emotionality or cognitive. And yeah. for a long time, I didn't really understand what that – and I think John Mark also sort of mentioned it where, yeah, it's a physical reaction. Uh, your face mm-hmm. turns red. Um, you know, you start sweating or, you know, it's actually, it's actually physicality where I think people, even myself, we, you kind of get confused. Well, this is how I feel. But now you're talking about a label, right? Which is different than the physical, than, different than the physical response. Yep. Is that how that's you would it. classify it as well? Yeah, yeah, that's it. Yeah. So, all right. With my research, I'm interested in, in labeling emotions. As far as if you label an emotion, you can actually reduce someone. You can reduce your own anxiety and possibly reduce someone else's anxiety. And I guess. I don't know. There's there's been literature that says even if you label it as a negative emotion, you can still re- reduce your own anxiety, um, which is maybe which is maybe a, a side topic. But I guess that's it was important for me to read this um, because emotions and feelings are totally different. And I guess feelings, the way you're describing it here, feelings are quite subjective, where an emotion is actually just a physical response. So maybe mm-hmm. if you're thinking about why did I have this physical response? That's something else, right? But the physical response is just a biological response, right? To to a situation? Reaction? Yes. Yeah. You're making so many um, great points here. Um, yes. So feelings can be subjective because they, they refer to like um, mental associations or, um, uh, you know... Um, our reactions, let's say, to an emotion, uh, which people do not always see. It's the way it is. It is related to uh, the way we we perceive what's happening, or the way we react to what's happening, and it can be quite subjective. Whereas emotions are like the the, the biological reactions or the physical manifestations, how we uh, show that at that moment we experience an emotion. Now. The fact that we can label it, you, you said that um, we, in labeling an emotion, we can perhaps manage it, right? And yeah, yeah, so we can label an emotion as positive or negative, or we can try to name an emotion. Mm-hmm. And uh, we can manage it. We are better able to manage it through this process because I think we are becoming more self aware. Uh, or more uh, or or better aware of what emotion we are experiencing i think it's difficult to uh, name an emotion and um, it's also even more difficult to have a number of people naming the same or or naming the same emotion or naming uh, the emotion that they would feel after a certain situation let's say that we expose a number of people 20 people to the same stimulus or to the same situation uh, and we ask them to tell us to use a word, one or two words, to describe how they felt or to, to name the emotion. I don't think that these 20 people will come up with exactly the same emotion words. Mm. Uh, some of their responses will be the same because I, th- I, I, I think you will agree with me that um, some emotions are universal or... Uh, the way we, we would respond to a situation would be to some extent universal. If someone tells a joke, most people will laugh and we, we will see that on their face. Or if something really bad happens, most people will feel sad. This is what I mean by universal. Uh, so uh, there will be some common reactions or some common emotions um, among people about a specific stimulus, but there will also be differences. So... In naming an emotion, 
there will be all of these differences, but in naming it, I think we are better able to manage it because we know how we are feeling, or at least we are acknowledging how we are feeling. Now, in labeling it as positive or negative, um, researchers in this case have come up with different um, views. So they have proposed different views by saying that um, we should move away from labeling emotions, from dividing them into positive or negative. And this is the fourth approach on page two, mm. uh, because you, you, you mentioned the approaches on page two earlier. That's the post-structuralist discursive approach, which um, views emotions are so, as socially constructed, historically constructed, interactionally um, and even politically constructed. So the, the post-structuralist or discursive approach uh, views emotions as um, constructed but by what is happening around us. Mm. Uh, we are influenced by what is but by our uh, surroundings and we react to a situation in a certain way. We might be influenced by the people that are around us and we react we emotionally react in a certain way. We might be influenced by the dynamics of what of, of what happens or by um, the fact that we know who we are. Let's say we are in, in an interactional environment and we um, know that there are some power relations there and we, we know that and we respect that and that is why we react emotionally in a specific way. So the post-structuralist discursive approach actually suggests that we shouldn't divide emotions into positive or negative and this is something that we felt, my, my, my um, uh, co-author uh, Liz Miller and I felt it important to clarify in some of our writings so that we, um, we, we show that we are aware of this approach to emotions as well. Um, again, I think uh, some people will contest that. For example, one might say, who would classify anger as positive? For example, anger is always negative. So why should we move away from, from classifying anger as negative? Because it, it's negative all the time and which is something that i agree with and happiness is usually positive isn't it mm -hmm. um there might be cases where we might think okay some emotions can function both positively and negatively depending on the situation but yes some of them can be primarily negative or primarily positive but again it depends on the situation there might be cases for example with our students uh, in which we might feel it is important to show anger and when I say anger, I do not mean shouting and reacting in extreme ways, but it might be, we might feel as teachers that it is useful to show to them that we are frustrated or angry about a persistent behavior mm. that in order to show them, to, to make them understand that this is something that they should change. If, for example, they do not complete homework or they do not submit homework um, on time or they, we, we see that they do not do it in every single class, we will understand that this student will be left behind. Most likely they will be left behind. Um, and we need to show to them that what they are doing is not good and will not help them to improve. So that might be a moment where we may want to show um, a, a, a typically or traditionally negative emotion. But we do that because we think that by showing it, the outcome will be positive. So it's very complex, and I hope I made myself clear. No, you, you have, and if you don't mind, I know this is your interview, I'd like to kind of explain how this relates to my research. Um, yes, because, I'm, I'm very much interested in that, yeah. Because I'm teaching in Japan, and emotional, I shouldn't say emotional display, I know this is where it gets complicated. Let's call it facial display. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Facial display rules in Japan are different than in, in America, for example. And there's been studies by um, David Matsumoto, who, who I did an interview with earlier, if people want to check out, where he did this study where he found that Japanese students had different facial displays than American students, number one. And then also they had different imp impressions of another person's facial display. Um, so that's, that's one thing. Um, the, the other part of my, my research is about performance. So if someone is feeling anxious, uh, or experiencing language learning anxiety in the classroom, if it gets to a certain point, it's going to degrade performance. I'd like to stop a student from getting to that point where it degrades performance. So if you can, if I can get the student to label their emotion, 
whether it's positive or negative, it doesn't matter to me if I can get them to as sort of a coping method or uh, as sort of a way to to stop um, the way to stop the anxiety. Um, I'm I'm interested in that. Like for example, there the the FBI uses emotion labeling in hostage negotiations, and, and just for in the moment. They'll say something like, oh, it seems like you're really upset about this or it seems like you really don't want to do this right now. And they found that just labeling someone else's emotion will bring uh, the the anxiety level down a bit. And so mm-hmm. I'm interested in applying emotion labeling as almost like a performance coach or almost as a teacher to avoid letting someone uh, reach the point where anxiety curbs performance or where it leads to like a performance catastrophe. So that's where all of this is interesting to me. That's that's sort of sure. what my 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 view on it, where I'm coming from. Sure, yeah, a really interesting project, and um, I haven't come across much uh, on this particular area in our field, actually. Uh, I am I am sure you you're going to draw um, heavily on psychology and general education. And then on the literature on language anxiety in our field, actually. Yeah, my my um, I'm actually in the psychology department. That's yeah, I, I wasn't okay. planning on that, but that's what they said. Your yeah, your yeah. your project is, and that and that's why it's hard. This whole thing is hard in Japan, because getting back to your your uh, what do you call it? The post structuralist discursive approach, mm-hmm. where Japanese people feel there's display rules. Like you sort of mentioned a power dynamic or if there's someone in the class, like I should display my emotion to this person in this situation or or in generally speaking, uh, Japanese people don't display negative emotions in public. Um, yeah. That's just sort of like a societal thing. So if you're a performance coach and you can't read if a student is uh, feeling a, a negative emotion, it's really hard to help them. So that's why it's it's hard it's a little bit harder in Japan because you cannot see the emotion, right? I okay. guess you can get yeah. them to report self-report their feeling, and then you can get a clue about it that way. But actually, mm-hmm. in the room, in the classroom, it's really hard to tell what a student is feeling because they don't display the same. I guess they're stopping the. You, you know, you talk about biological, right? You said it's innate, and we all have biological emotions. Well, maybe over time, these students have trained themselves in Japanese society. To, to not display the emotion they're feeling. Yeah. Which is hard for yeah. a teacher to, which is a bit hard for a teacher to uh, to help if a student is feeling language learning anxiety, for example. So yeah, that's, absolutely. That's, a, that's the stress for teachers in Japan, I think. Um, it's kind of hard. I think we see a lot of sort of non, non-emotive faces. Um, mm-hmm. So it's hard to tell if a student is bored, if they're scared, if they're nervous. Um, it, it's really it's really hard, and then you can't really get a student to speak out in class because they'll be too shy. So you, I think we people that are fo- focusing on this re- research, we really re- rely on a lot of self reports, or even like I did a study where I had them self report twice in a class, like it was the same survey, and just to sort of get a read on how my students were feeling, because mm-hmm. I just did, I just didn't know. I had I had no clue. It was like it was like a poker face. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's that's um, th- that's going to be a very interesting study, and I would like to to hear more about it as we go along. And um, I am sure it will be helpful for um, uh, job, for colleagues who are based in Japan, but also beyond. So, uh, you, you know, in other contexts, I mean. Well, anyway, enough about me. Let's get let's get into your <laughs> anyway. But this book is right up my alley, so I appreciate you writing it. Let's get into your Thank chapter, you. chapter mm-hmm. eight: critical incidents in language teachers' narratives of emotional experience. Now, you co-wrote this with Elizabeth Miller. She's a professor at the University of North Carolina in Charlotte. Um, yeah. How did how did you end up um, getting together and writing this? Okay, yeah, that's another interesting story. Uh, with Liz, we met online initially because um, I think that was when I was uh, still doing my PhD. Um, Liz and uh, two or three other colleagues were co-editing a book on language learner agency. 
Mm. And in the in the data I had collected from my PhD, I found uh, links between language learner anxiety and agency, and agentic behavior, mm. and uh, they um, they were doing an open call for chapter proposals for their book and I had submitted my I had submitted an abstract and it was accepted and it um, turned out that Liz would be in charge of my chapter so there were four editors I believe and they had divided the chapters between them and uh, she was in charge of my uh, chapter and this is how we started interacting online and then we met in person at a AAAL conference in I think it was, that was in Toronto, mm. in Canada, in 2015, and that was the first time that we met in person. And uh, this is um, this is how everything started after that. So um, uh, Liz came to my talk. I went to her talk. Uh, we met, uh, you know, outside of uh, the conference times uh, for for a drink, and um, uh, then we met again at uh, other different events. Uh, she came to Essex uh, last year as well. Uh, so we are in very regular contact and we have worked on a lot of different writings together and we have done research, collected data together as well. Uh, so this chapter is uh, um, the data that we actually draw in this chapter come from a larger study that mm. we uh, started together back in 2016. Um, and uh, the uh, larger study includes uh, questionnaires, online questionnaires, and uh, uh, 30 interviews. Whereas in the chapter in the emotional roller coaster book, we uh, we focus on the interviews of 13 teachers only, uh, because these 13 teachers produced what we um, classed as critical incidents. Uh, and uh, the bigger study we actually published um, already. I think two. Yes, two um, articles uh, which drawn data from our larger study. Uh, this is um, a third publication and we keep working on that data. And we actually expanded the study by having data from teachers working in other contexts. So we started with English language teachers teaching in the UK and the US, but we now have some more data and we will be uh, working on them in the, during this academic year. So this is how our collaboration started. Did did you set out to find critical incidents from from what I gathered they they happened organically and you started to see yes. patterns where where teachers were reporting critical incidents. When when in the process did you start seeing that pattern and then and then sort of saying, "Oh, well this is this is a great thing to focus on." Yeah. Uh, so yes, uh, that's right. Uh, they, um, it was not our intention to look at critical incidents, and the interview questions that we were asking had nothing to do with that. Mm. They were. Um, I will mention a couple of examples of the interview questions, which were very general. I would say, um, we asked them what are the, what the responsibilities these teachers have in their current positions, which aspects of their job they enjoy the least or the mm. most. Um, we asked them about uh, the emotions that they experience and how they manage them, whether they find this easier, difficult, and why. Uh, so th these kinds of questions. Uh, and uh, we ended the, the interview conversations with advice that these teachers would, could give to um, newly qualified teachers or less experienced teachers. But when the teachers were answering those questions, uh, some of them, these 13 teachers, started telling stories uh, about things that happened in the past, um, stories similar to what you mentioned earlier about the teacher, the uh, student challenging the teacher in class and very openly. So they were mentioning stories that um, were very emotionally charged, but usually towards the end of those stories, they would say things like, but I'm not doing this anymore, or I'm not seeing things this way any longer, and I have changed, and I have learned this and that. And um, that was a time when we were um, analyzing the data, and we were, uh, um, in a way, we were taking out excerpts from the data that we thought were interesting without really knowing what we would do with them. Um, we had some research questions in mind, but we hadn't finalized anything. And that was a time when I was reading a book by Tripp, um, 
called Critical Incidents in Teaching. So mm. that was about general teaching, not language teaching. And it's a, it's a really nice book. It's it's short. <laughs> and, uh, and I remember reading it, uh, finishing the book very quickly. And I thought, well, what Trip is, is talking about in this book um, fits nicely with some of the stories that these teachers have told us. And I, I um, shared these ideas with Liz, uh, my notes, while the notes I was taking while reading the book. And we both felt that, yeah, these are critical incidents and they can be uh, classified as such according to Tripp's descriptions and definition and everything. Uh, so we did a little bit of, um, of um, search uh, to make sure that we are on the right path. And this is how we came up with the idea for this chapter. And we we um, decided to be very clear about our criteria for classifying a story uh, as a critical incident. And uh, the important things that uh, we uh, highlight in the chapter are that critical incidents should refer to a past event or a past story. Uh, they narrate that. Um, they uh, use language that is emotionally charged. Uh, it could be either positive language or negative language. Um, and they should actually show a change in the in the person's worldview, in the way they do things. And they lead to that, that change. So participants themselves also treat them as a lesson, as something that they have learned. And eventually, they lead to a change. And in our case, they lead to a change in the teacher's practice or in the way they view themselves as practitioners, as teachers. Well, let's, so, can, can I ask you a question about this this methodology yeah. so i'm really curious about this because it sounds like you kind of stumbled on this method of eliciting critical incidents but you didn't set out to elicit critical incidents so for example if you were to say to a teacher in, in if you if you were going to come out come come about this research in another in another way and say tell me a story about something bad that mm -hmm. happened in the classroom right you might not have gotten the same results so after you started to see you're getting these organic critical incidents being told to you did you then go back and look at ways people had previously elicited critical incidents and did you did you find that there was a technique to do this in sort of a roundabout way where you're indirectly trying to draw out a story well, yeah, um, you are right. We didn't in uh, during the interviews. We we didn't tell. We didn't ask our participants to tell us a story. So we didn't give them We didn't give them instructions, or we didn't ask questions that were focusing on that. Um, as you said, they emerged organically. Uh, we then. Uh, yeah, we actually um, thought of ways through which we could have asked things or we could have elicited critical incident stories. And then, yes, we also looked at the literature and the way um, such stories are elicited in other kinds of research. And there is a lot of research on critical incidents, but not in our field. They are actually used in totally different fields. Not even they are, they are used outside education, for example, in police interviews and, you know, areas like this one, which are yeah, totally different. Yeah, you mentioned different. the U.S. Yeah. Uh, the U.S. military. Army, what was, yes, the U.S. Army, yes. So um, these are like interrogation techniques almost. Yes, yes. <laughs> and and we, we, never, we, we never told our participants to, we never asked them to tell us a story, a specific story, but they just started narrating. Interesting. And, yeah, and, and when you start listening to stories from people, you don't want to stop them, you don't want to interrupt them. You want to learn more and more about what happened and why it happened. And um, these teachers, that was another thing that, again, we it was not intentional from us to recruit in our study highly experienced teachers. It just turned out that those teachers who were willing to participate were experienced. And... I think this also helped to elicit critical incidents, even indirectly, because these teachers had lots of stories to share with us. So how did you find out that a critical incident is classified by someone using emotionally charged language? Why is that a factor in this? Uh, so, yeah, that, that was something that um, emerged from our literature review. 
So looking at um, uh, the literature in um, in a number of disciplines. So can I uh, in- can I ask a follow up then, real quick? Because yeah, I think yeah, you answered yeah. that. So then, then I can deduce that when you're interrogating someone, it's more likely to get real information if someone is actually using emotionally charged language. That's that. Are they trying to get someone to be to 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 emote something? Are they trying to get them? Are they looking for that? Like if someone's using emotionally charged language, that means they're more likely to be telling the truth. Is that what, is that what this is getting at? Um, yeah, that's a good question. Uh, so yeah, if you, if you ask them to, um, talk about the past story, uh, they would definitely bring their, um, emotional reactions to it by describing, by narrating the story. Now, the extent to which they are telling the truth, that's a good point. Um, it, I, I guess in interrogations, it depends on all sorts of other factors that these particular professionals are trained in, like checking facial expressions, mm. fidgeting, all of that, which we didn't focus on. Um, so I guess in these uh, professional interrogations, it's a different thing. And maybe there are also other strategies that are combined with emotionally charged discourse that help these people to understand whether someone is telling the truth or not. Um, so in our case, uh, we didn't focus on this aspect much, but we used it as a very important criterion to classify a story as critical incident. I'm not sure if I'm answering the question. No, is this, um, is this something... Now, this, this is really fascinating to me because you kind of stumbled upon a technique that worked well. Yeah. Are you interested in using this technique in the future for another data collection where you're actually setting out to get the critical incidents and you're going to use this sort of indirect technique because uh, now you know that yes. it happens? Yeah, yeah, possibly yes, because the focus of our research is going to be teacher emotions anyway. And when we are focusing on emotions, I think inevitably we are led to stories that have had an impact on people for whatever reason, either a very positive reason or a negative reason. Um, So the fact that we are focusing, just the fact that we are focusing on emotions, I think leads to... Um, stories that have had any uh, 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 emotional impact on people. And then through these stories, yes, we can use this set of criteria to decide whether a story they are, they are recounting is a critical incident or not. Because there were stories in the remaining 17 interviews or so that we couldn't classify as critical incidents because they didn't share at least one of the, these characteristics that we relied on. So we thought it's not um, rigorous in a this, way, methodologically, to class them as critical incidents. This is great because I'm actually a big critic of self-reports and, yeah. retro, and retrospective, you know, analysis. And because I just feel like it can be subjective, and I'd rather you know try to correlate it with an objective measure. But but mm-hmm. you're saying there's this criteria, and that kind of makes sense, right? If someone's telling a story and they can't really say how they felt, um. Maybe they're lying. Like that—that's—that's that's cool to me. Yeah. I never—I never thought about that before. Well, yeah. Sorry. Yeah, I, th- I think when we, when we are collecting data, uh, we are relying on um, the the honesty of our mm-hmm. participants, right? But then, um, in research. Uh, in research methodology textbooks, um, reading research methodology textbooks, uh, we have learned that there are cases where participants try to project a different image in order mm-hmm. to please the researcher or yep. because this different image is socially desirable. And um, that is why it's uh, um, if, if we can do that, it's always a good idea to combine one tool with another, which is something that I guess you will be encouraged or advised to do in uh, PhD. In our case, we relied on these interview accounts and um, on the participants' honesty and integrity. Uh, but uh, clearly, one of our future goals or one of the limitations of this particular study would be to combine it with another tool, let's say, observing the teachers. But because these are all past stories, it is um, impossible to observe them. We just have to rely on um, on, on the, the honesty of their accounts. This is so cool to me. This is so yeah. cool. Good. Because I'm glad be- to hear that. Because, if, because it makes sense, right? If you were to say... Um, 
tell me a story of something bad that happened in the classroom. Already the person's in a different frame of mind. Should I tell this story? Why does the person want to know this story? Oh, I have to tell a good story, right? But -hmm. if you're asking these other questions and then it just brings out an organic story... And then yeah. you can you can you can produce the criteria where where it could fit into a critical incident. Then you can analyze the data set. I'm actually much more on board with this process because some studies that are you know I, I don't know I, I'm a bit skeptical sometimes where where someone will come out with a study about self reports from their classroom, and I'll think well I don't know why should I trust what these people said like I I wasn't there. I don't, and I guess if it can be replicated with a thousand people, then it's okay. Yeah, it's true. Mm-hmm. But I'm I'm more likely to be skeptical about uh, something like this. But I, th- what you're saying makes makes a lot of sense, and you were able to to come up with some some conclusions. Like for example, don't take things personally. That's a very tangible thing. That is that something you tell your masters Tesla students? Yes. Don't all take the time. things personally. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm saying this to them. I think this is a very important piece of advice, and it actually in in it is something that emerged in the remaining interviews, the ones that we haven't included in this chapter. Mm. Um, not taking things personally, um, understanding understanding that people are different, and they have different backgrounds, different experiences. You know all of that, but not taking things personally. I, I think it's very important, and it's also it's one of those things that you learn, I think. There's another thing you mentioned about how teachers said they they wanted to endeavor to understand student emotion behavior. I think that would be quite tiring, like even thinking about that. I have 300 students. I don't have time to figure out each one of their things. Is there any tips tips you have uh, for teachers to, again, taking this, you know, from a perspective of, this will help you to get through your the emotional roller coaster. Are there any tips you can you can give teachers to to do this without being sort of a maybe I'm taking it too dramatic, right? You can't you can't really understand every one of your students' emotions and behavior because you might teach hundreds of students and they might be feeling differently at different times. Is there an approach that you might is there some advice you'd give teachers how because I, I read that and I thought, hey, that's really great, but I don't know if I can do that. Like, I, it's impossible for mm-hmm. me to do it for all of my students. What what can uh, I yeah. do instead? That's another good point. That um, and maybe I should clarify that that the teachers uh, that took part in our study uh, were working with manageable groups, and Ooh. by manageable, I refer to sizes, to class size. So um, they they didn't have to deal with such a, such a large number of students at the same time as you, like three hundred people in the same. Oh, class. sorry, no, it's not. It's not three hundred at the same time, but it's three hundred oh, okay. over the course of a week. Oh, Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So ten classes, now. ten classes, like thirty students each. Okay. Okay. I got it now. Because there are indeed lots of contexts around the world where uh, one class can include, let's say, 150 people. Right. Which to me sounds really hard, mm. um, and I, I'm not sure what I would do. So what you can do in that uh, case is to make sure what what I tell my students all the time is to not take things personally. To keep in mind that you can't always please everybody. And Mm. the more people you have in a class, the more difficult it gets to please everybody. And by this, I don't mean that they should be careless, that they, they, they are thinking that, okay, I can't please everybody, so I'm going to do my own thing and I don't care. It doesn't mean that. It just means that we are trying to do our best. And we are trying to plan a lesson and deliver it in a way that um, our students will like and they will be engaged throughout the lesson. But I think we should always have like in our mind, we should always keep this in our mind that there might be one or two students who don't like what we are doing. Mm. And it's actually when you go to a conference and you present your work. How can you be sure that everybody in the audience will like that or will will agree with what you said or think you are a good presenter? I am sure that there will be cases of one or two people, but we are trying to keep this number as slow as possible. This is our intention, really, um, who who, who will find something that they don't like. So I always tell them that you should keep this in your mind 
um, and 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 be alert to that. And if you notice that this happens, if you, if it's something you can see, then talk to that person and ask them what's going on. I have actually done it. There have mm. been cases during my lectures when I thought. Uh, maybe that's, I'm not sure if this is a critical incident for me. I was not so much emotionally influenced, but I did something else. I will say that now. Um, I was teaching a research methods class here at the university two years ago, and this was for master's students. And this is a compulsory module for all our master's students, which means that the classes are larger than normal. Mm. So I had... Uh, more than 50 people in a research methods class. And my sessions are practical because I am doing qualitative data analysis. And they, we read interviews in class and we say how we analyze them and all of that. Mm. And there were a few students who were actually sitting at the front. You would expect disruptive students to sit at the back <laughs> of the classroom. Right. They were sitting on the first row right in front of me. And I, I, I found that very um, confusing uh, that they were just chatting and um, the behavior was different from the behavior of all other students. They were not making much noise, to be to be honest, but uh, they were reacting in a different, in a slightly different way. So what I did is I um, first of all talked to the teachers who are teaching the same students, and they had noticed the same. So that was a good thing. It was not just in my class. Then I um, invited, um, on two different occasions, I invited two different people, one person from my department to observe the class and one person from outside my department, a colleague of mine from a different area, just to see how they would react to a person they had never met being in the classroom. Hmm. And um, after doing that and discussing with those teachers that were observing, I also talked to the students. And it turned out that they were reacting in this way, but it had nothing to do with the class. So they were doing the work that I was asking them to do. It's just that they were more chatty for some personal reasons. I'm not going to go into that. Hmm. Uh, but but I, I think it's always good to share and to um, ask colleagues to help you, ask them for their advice, ask them to come to your class if you think that's going to help. Um, and um, keep all of these, you know, all of these ideas in mind, actually. Uh, so this is what I always tell my students and never hesitate to ask questions or to ask someone else to help you. All right. Well, we're coming up on an hour. Um, so I think we'll probably wrap it up here in a second. Again, it's uh, the emotional roller coaster of language teaching. And the chapter is critical incidents in language teachers narratives of emotional experience. Maybe just to wrap up the interview. There's lots more I could have talked to you about. Um, but uh, that's how it goes. Um, I guess maybe the, the last question is, do you have any advice for up and coming academics or teachers? Um, so some tips that you learned along the way as far as maybe time management, how to, how to manage your, your teaching energy and your research energy, your publishing. Do you have goals about how much you'd like to publish per year? How do you keep yourself going? How do you keep your, your energy up? I'm sure different academics are going to have different problems. Um, is there anything mm -hmm. that you sort of learned along the way that, that you could pass on to the next generation of, of uh, <laughs> academics? Yeah, so, okay, it's a difficult time, I think, to try to manage different tasks at the same time because of the new um, requirements of online teaching, adjusting to situations and all of that. Um, but what I have learned throughout the um, uh, years is how to best manage my time. Mm. Uh, I think I was doing that okay um, anyway, but I can tell that I'm doing much better now. And I have learned um, uh, I have learned how to manage time, how to prioritize tasks, and also how much time I should devote to each task. So um, I'm not sure if everybody can do that because they might be handling um, tasks that are more demanding that, than what I have at the moment. But um, I try to um, evaluate in advance how much time I should devote to something, depending on its nature, depending on how important it is, who it relates to, and so on. Um, so that was one thing I have learned. And uh, the other thing that I have learned is that um, at the beginning, when I um, joined the, uh, this department in this um, 
research position, I was trying to do everything at the same time to um, stay online until late to to answer all the emails, maybe spend some time during the weekend to finish something. But I have learned to be more relaxed now mm. and um, understand that things can also wait so you don't always have to um, uh, finish something uh, and, and you know when this makes you stressed and this takes away time uh, that you might want to spend with your family etc so again this is something that I have learned which I think is very closely linked to what I mentioned earlier time management um, you uh, learn as you go along to complete tasks quicker and to be more efficient. And I think this is something you learn through experience. Well, uh, thank you so much for coming on on the Lost in Citations podcast. Again, it's the emotional roller coaster of language teaching, and there is a link to to buy the book uh, on the website. So. Th thank you again for coming on the show and, and best of luck with, with your teaching and research uh, this term and year. Thank you. If you'd like to contact the show, the best place to find out about us is our website, lostincitations.com. Here you can learn more about the background to this project and how you can get involved. Our hope is to help academics, educators, and online content producers get in contact with each other. Our email address is lostincitations at gmail.com. We also have Facebook and LinkedIn pages. Please rate and comment on the sites you use to download your podcasts. It helps us reach more potential listeners. But probably the most helpful thing you can do is, if you like our content, recommend it to a friend and let them know what we're trying to do. Thank you very much.